Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get started, the book of the week for this week is The Deviant's War by Eric Cervini. The Deviant's War, the homosexual versus the United States of America. And I've just started it, but a very interesting book looking at a very important legal case involving a gentleman um, who was in the military and related to military matters, but uh, and being homosexual back in the, I think it was in the 50s, and legally there was a lot going on related to that, but um, again, I haven't read the book in total yet, but it seems to have had a big impact on the movement of gay rights in the LGBTQ community. So looking forward to reading that book and sharing it with you on Monday's show. Uh, So today I want to start off talking about time and time management. It's a topic we hear about a lot and where we think ourselves, oh, I don't have good time management, or we think uh, someone who does or doesn't have good time management. And it is a very important topic, and there's various aspects to it. And like a lot of things, like willpower or time management or work ethic, we look at it sometimes as this one factor, like are you good at time management or bad? What really is going on though with something like time management is there's various factors at play. It's not just one thing. And the reason why that can be important is that when we look at it as time management as this thing you have or you don't, or just some skill that gets developed as one type of a skill uh, that you don't really get to um, break it down, it, it makes it a lot harder to actually recognize what might be your issues related to time um, and what might be getting in the way of you using your time more effectively or being happier and feeling better about how you are using time. So in a sense, we all have time management issues in the sense that with certain things or certain times, uh, I guess pun intended, in our lives or days or weeks or whatever it might be, we will be challenged with how we are spending our time or we might not feel so good or we might feel like we are wasting time uh, or even how we look at wasting time or being productive is important. So there's so many different facets and factors of this issue, but I thought it'd be good to look at this because it is a very important issue, really. We have just some uh, unknown amount of time on this earth and how we use it and don't use it could really impact what we do, what we don't do, and how we feel about our lives and what we have done and not done. Um, So there's so many things to look at with this. uh, One thing that was brought to my attention recently that made me want to uh, talk about it today is, you know, we make to-do lists 
things I, I want to do either today, this week, this month, the year, whatever it might be. But sometimes we also have to also look at a to-don't list or don't-do list, meaning we want to look at our days and uh, weeks or however you want to break down your time and look at the ways that you are wasting time. And so again, as I touched on just a minute ago, sometimes we might think having fun or relaxing is a waste of time when we actually need it. So we have to look at having a balance in our lives, but we also recognize there's things we do that waste our time. For example, mindlessly going on social media or watching shows. And as I say that, I recognize it could be good to do those for a certain amount of time, but if we don't put in check how much or be aware of how much we're doing these things, we might recognize we're wasting a lot of our time. Um, and so if we don't look at this in this way of what am I doing, how am I using my time, we might realize we're just focused on what we're doing, but not realizing that what's getting in the way of what we're doing are the things that we'd rather not do, or at least not do as much. So by a do not do list or don't do list, um, or to don't list, you don't have to necessarily make the things black and white that you will never do these things, but you might set limits on them. Only do this 30 minutes a day. Only do this 15 minutes a day. Catch yourself when you are doing this um, for a long period of time. You might recall, I think it's a few years ago now, I had the author of the book Mindful Tech, David Levy, on my show, and he was talking about in that book this concept that technology and social media, computers, phones, they're not an all bad thing, obviously, but we want to be mindful of, that's the title, of how we're using these things and how it's affecting our time and also how mindful we are. Because a lot of what we do with our technology, like going on your phone, is just trying to distract ourselves and becoming mindless, trying not to stay connected to ourselves and what we're feeling. And that's why we want to, in a way, lose ourselves in that. We use things like going on our phone or maybe binge watching a show to completely disconnect from our experience. And that's why we could lose track of time because in a way we want to lose track of time and lose track of almost reality in a sense. We don't want to be connected to what's going on. So we would prefer to check out and so when you check out, you're not going to be as aware and the time can go by. And so you might be like, oh gosh, I've been uh, on Instagram for an hour or I've been watching YouTube videos without really paying attention for this long and, and might not feel good about how we are using your time. And now this always is important, how we're using our time, what we're doing and ways that we don't like that we are spending our time. Uh, but especially with what's happened with coronavirus and quarantine and lockdown, people are finding that they might have more free time than before. Now, this is not true for everyone, of course, based on uh, life circumstances and situations, but many people have more free time, but you might notice you are not using more time or you don't feel like you're being more productive. And by productive, I don't necessarily mean doing work in the traditional sense, but feeling that you're doing things with your time that you like or that are important to you. Uh, I work with couples and it's, you know, sometimes these things come up, well, we want to talk about things or discuss different issues, but there just isn't time. And then now that they do have more time together and more time to communicate, they find they're still 
not talking about things. So we recognize that lack of time wasn't really the issue or not the whole issue. It was some type of avoidance of something they didn't want to do. Or meditation, another one of those things, which especially for people can bring up this issue of time because you might feel like you're quote unquote not doing anything, even though it can be a very important exercise and be very helpful to you but it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. And so people might think, well, I don't have time to meditate. And then now when people's lives might have slowed down and there was more time, people still found they weren't doing it. So we see that the not doing of these good things that we want to do wasn't necessarily a time issue. It was more of we were avoiding it and looking for an excuse to avoid it. And meditation, going back to this being mindless and trying to check out, it's the complete opposite of that. It's checking in and being connected with what you are feeling. And as I've discussed many times on the show already, we have to be prepared that when you do meditate and get more in touch with yourself, you are likely to get in touch with lots of feelings, some pleasant, but also some unpleasant. We tend to have this uh, idea of meditation, of this peaceful Zen feeling. And of course, it does bring about that and can contribute to that. But also when you are more connected to yourself, you're likely to get in touch with and come across feelings that are not very pleasant. And so people tend to want to avoid this and avoid these feelings because we think these feelings are unbearable. They are uncomfortable. So we'd rather rather get away from them. It's just like if you scan your body, which actually is a form of uh, meditation to do a body scan and feel every part of your body, you'll come across different types of pains or aches that you maybe were not aware of. So it's not just that if you scan your body, you get in touch with nice feelings, you also might get in touch with some discomforts and not good feelings. So similarly, when we get in touch with our emotional body, we are going to get in touch with things that aren't pleasant as well, but it can bring about awareness and more understanding and a deeper connection with ourselves. So we always want to look at when it comes to time, what am I doing with my time? What am I not doing with my time? What am I doing that I don't want to do or I feel like I'm doing too much of? So that could be first kind of like an assessment of looking at your day. And when people do this, they can be very surprised. They might notice I spent three hours just looking at my phone in a mindless way and not even sure what I was trying to do, and I didn't really get anything out of it. And so that what is very important of what am I doing with my time? And how do I feel about that? What would I like to make less? And definitely what would I like to make more of? What people often find as us saying with meditation is we say, well, you know, I want to exercise more, or I want to connect with my kids more, or my partner more when I have the time. But if we don't make the time, as in allocate time for different things, the time doesn't just come out of thin air. We don't just somehow find more time to go do community service or exercise or or meditate. We have to set aside the time. And so not only do we have to set aside time and plan and prioritize and create that to-do list, but we also have to create a don't do or to don't list of things we don't want to do or things that we want to do less of because they're wasting our time or we feel like too much of it is a waste of time. 
So again, I don't think it always has to be black and white that you have to necessarily get rid of all social media. You can do that if you feel like that's something you'd like to do. But you can also find a way of keeping it in moderation, but likely you'll have to keep yourself in check because we know these things can draw us into that mindlessness that just sucks our time and we get stuck and not realizing how much time we're wasting doing that. Now, after the break, I'll continue on this topic and get into reasons why we might avoid things. Because one of the most common time management issues we have is what we call procrastination. And we've all been there. We all do it. And we tend to think of it as this characteristic. Oh, I'm a procrastinator. And it might be something you do often, but it's not necessarily a part of who you are. It's a way of coping or dealing with things dealing with anxiety or dealing with the anxiety of doing certain things that then leads to you procrastinating and dealing with those those issues that come up. So after the break, I'll get a bit into that. And of course, you can call in. Um, it doesn't have to be about this topic, but if you'd like to call the studio, 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. So in the first segment I was talking about time management and how we can all feel like we struggle with this because all of us struggle with it at times and it's something we can work on not as just a single type of skill but looking at the various factors and facets that go into time management and how we are using our time and also what we are not doing with our time. And so I introduced that concept that was recently introduced to me of having a to don't list or a list of things that we don't want to do or feel are not good use of our time or coming up with limits to certain things that we do. So we don't want to do them for more than a certain amount of time. And of course, having goals and to do lists can also be helpful as well. And within that, we might have to get more detailed because sometimes when you just make, okay, I want to do these three things today, and it seems pretty easy, you'll have time for it, but you might not get into doing them and you might let the day pass by without completing those tasks or getting those things done. So it can be helpful to schedule things. Just like if you had a meeting, you wouldn't miss that meeting, even if it's, let's say, 45 minutes of your day. If you have something to do that takes 45 minutes, if you just say, I'll do it at some point, you might not ever do it. So scheduling things can be important. As I was saying before the break, when we just say, I'll do something when I have time or when there's a good time, we often will find that we won't make that time or make it happen. And so why that happens is what I wanted to also talk about in this segment. Because when we look at time management just as a thing, just like with work ethic, which is very much related to it, uh, we could just look at it as something we have or we don't have, we're good at or we don't, uh, aren't good at, or we look at someone we know who we think is good at it and we aren't, but it's much deeper than that. One of the main reasons why we procrastinate, why we avoid doing something, it's less to do with some kind of a... Of a characteristic like laziness, which is often used to describe others or ourselves when we don't get things done, but it usually has a lot more to do with anxiety. Now, before I get into that, another psychological factor or issue that could contribute to not getting things done can be depression, 
which of course depression and anxiety can coexist and often do. But if you're feeling depressed, you're going to have less energy, less motivation, less ability to focus. You'll also believe in yourself less. So if you have to do something, you might doubt yourself more or not sure you could do it or uh, not sure it'll make a difference. You'll have a more pessimistic outlook on things. So you might even feel like, well, what's the point if I do this? It's not going to lead to anything better. So depression definitely can contribute to uh, difficulties getting things done and using our times in effective ways. And unfortunately, as is the cycle with depression, you don't do things or you feel like you weren't productive in a day and then you look back on that day and feel worse about yourself and unfortunately it can just contribute further to getting into a depressed state or uh, your depression worsening that's unfortunately one of the things we see with depression is that it can create this downward spiral another area where this shows up is uh, when you're depressed you tend to withdraw you don't feel as confident you don't want to be around people you prefer to be alone but of course this isolation and loneliness only further exacerbates your depression and you can feel worse so that's why we'll sometimes talk about uh, a downward spiral and one of the first guests i had on my show many years ago was uh, dr alex korb with his book the upward spiral which was actually trying to find small uh, steps we could take to go in the right direction because fortunately it, there is this downward spiral that can happen with depression but if we can create an upward spiral it also can lead to benefits or we might start to gain momentum so you spend some time and connect with people you feel even better and energized and then now you can do more things and then you feel better about yourself because of that and on and on so uh, that book did a great job of showing some steps you can take in a hopefully positive direction both if you're depressed or just in general for your overall mental health and well-being but anyway that's uh, one aspect of what might contribute to someone having a hard time getting things done and the reason i bring that up is because not just to look at blame or not blame or to say someone is the victim but when we're depressed we have a hard things getting hard time getting things done and so we're gonna feel bad about that as i was saying before and oftentimes people around us will make us feel bad so if you have someone in your family and they're having a hard time getting things done or completing tasks or they've become a lot less productive rather than just focusing on um, you know they're lazy they have no work ethic uh, they're entitled they're this or they're that those factors might be at play but it can be important to focus on how are they doing as far as their mental health if you have a child who is getting a's and now they're getting d's and f's rather than just thinking oh you're a bad student or you have bad friends or you're doing this or that you want to always check in with how they are doing overall not just focus on the performance but what might be leading to their performance and that drop in performance so i always tell parents to me a d or an f is uh, usually either they're in a wrong class for example they're in a math class it's totally out of their capabilities but more often than not it's more of an emotional grade than an academic grade it's telling us something is not okay on an emotional level or in their emotional lives and we want to focus there rather than just punishing their performance and saying you're bad or you're doing bad uh, so now shifting from depression to anxiety that tends to be a big cause of our procrastination or often it is the root of our procrastination because if you look at the things you procrastinate doing 
it's almost always things that are challenging, things that maybe you are worried about doing perfectly. And if so, of course, perfectionism comes into play here as a characteristic that some people have more or less. Uh, something you're not sure you can do, something unpleasant. We tend not to procrastinate the things we like to do. You go out and do them, you make sure there's time for them, you do them even more. But when it's something that brings up some uh, anxiety, those are the things we usually procrastinate. And unfortunately, it could be a very powerful, uh, I want to say coping, but unhealthy coping mechanism that we use. Because this is an example of how this anxiety might play out in the form of procrastination, something that we've all experienced, including myself. So you have to write an essay for school and you open the blank document and you're staring at the screen and you start to get nervous about, okay, is my essay going to be good? What is my first sentence going to be? How do I start this thing? Do I know what to do? What if my professor doesn't like it? And all these fears and anxieties start to come in, making us feel overwhelmed. And then we want to distract ourselves from that. So we open up our Facebook and then we go on Facebook and we feel this instant relief, this kind of Ah, that feels nice. Going from this state of anxiety and fear and panic that's coming along with starting this paper and getting the work done. And we get this relief, which reinforces this good feeling of I'm okay now, even though it's still in the back of your mind. And we've probably all experienced that too, where you get a little relief, but you don't feel great, but definitely you feel better than you did when you were worrying about that thing. And so we continue this cycle. So you might go back to the blank page and then look at it and you're like, uh-oh, like, what do I do? What's going to happen? And you distract yourself again. And then you go do something else that might distract you for a longer period of time. And then you have this internal struggle of like, I'm being bad. And this sometimes creates what we call productive procrastination. Okay, I'm, I'm going to not do the paper, but I'm cleaning my room. I'm doing something good, something that I needed to do. And that gives us a little bit of a comfort that at least I'm using my time wisely or better. But we know that what's really happening is that we're so anxious about something else that we'd rather do something that maybe usually we don't like to do, but at least it's better than that thing we're really feeling anxious about. So when you notice that you're procrastinating, rather than beat yourself up, which is usually what people think they should do. Oh, I'm being lazy. I'm being stupid. What am I doing? I know I need to do this. Why am I wasting my time? You want to try to understand what's going on first. The punishing isn't actually going to push you forward. It's more than likely going to push you down because you're still anxious about whatever the thing is. And now you're feeling a little worse about yourself. Why are you this way? And uh, why can't you do it? And that actually might make you feel even more like you can't do it. I just, I'm a lazy person or I'm not a very hardworking person. But if we try to understand why might I be anxious about this thing? And it, it takes some humility because sometimes people say, oh, why would I be anxious about writing a paper or making a phone call or whatever the thing might be? But if you really are humble and take that look and at yourself and say, okay, what might I be feeling? Oh, maybe I'm afraid to call this person. I'm feeling this anxiety because of their reaction or I know I have to call the insurance company, but I don't know if they're gonna give me an answer I like, or if they're gonna reject my claim or my this or my that. And so it makes me a little bit nervous of what that reaction might be. So I'd like to not do it uh, or related to something like that. I don't wanna go see the doctor because what if I get bad news and that bad news is scary to face. 
Again, I'm not saying these are good reasons to not do something, but these are reasons that almost all of us have found ourselves in, or at least anxieties we've all experienced that might prevent us from doing something or getting something done. So if we take a closer look at that and we say, oh, I'm, I'm so nervous or I, I want to make this paper perfect, maybe that's the problem and something I want to look at, uh, but I know it won't be. And I also know this is my first draft, so I'm just going to get something out there uh, and put something there. And we might make ourselves a little bit more comfortable getting started. I would have that uh, reaction a lot of times when it came to writing papers and I realized there was a lot of anxiety about different things but a big part that would get in the way was this what's the first sentence going to be and how do I start this paper with like this perfect or this really good opening sentence and it would really paralyze and freeze me and lead me into that cycle of distracting myself going to Facebook going to my phone going just away from the computer to get away from that anxiety. So what I started to do at times was just start a paper in the middle. So I wouldn't do the opening paragraph first. I would just start somewhere in the body or some idea I had and then kind of work around that and work backwards and forwards from that just to get things written down. I remember hearing that Ernest Hemingway, he realized that the hardest part of writing each day was uh, getting started, just getting the next page or whatever it was that day started and so what he would do is at nights he would end his work without completing a chapter so he'd kind of be near the end of a chapter or a part of the book so that the next day it would be easier to kind of continue and finish that and then now he's already has the momentum of working and then he'd be able to continue through and write and I sometimes like hearing stories like that about great people because sometimes we think of these uh, artists or people that are larger than life type figures and think, you know, they must have been different than us and they must have just been able to work perfectly or somehow their works just came out of them without them having to really put any effort. But then we are reminded of their humanness and that as humans, they struggled and they at times found ways to deal with those struggles. At times, they probably just struggled and didn't find ways of dealing with it and could have done more or could have done better or wish they had done. And it reminds us that we're human too, and we're going to also have challenges. And that even with those challenges, you can still uh, do great things. I think it was uh, in Richard Thaler's book, he was talking about um, how Daniel Kahneman said uh, he, he was getting a call from a newspaper and they asked him, what's his best quality. What's Richard Thaler's best quality? And he said he's lazy. And it sounds really funny. And he was kind of joking, but he wasn't. But he said that, yeah, his laziness makes it that he won't uh, start on a project or um, a topic unless it's really important or interesting enough to catch his attention. And I thought that was kind of funny. But also reading that book, it was interesting to see this Nobel winning uh, economist being described as lazy and self-proclaimed lazy. Uh, and again, I know I, I earlier said that that word can be loaded and sometimes is representing something else. But anyway, um, just as a reminder that people that have done great things, challenged, uh, had challenges and had to overcome and experience challenges their whole life and their personality and who they were, we sometimes have this mindset of others or even of ourself or a future self that's going to be perfectly productive, get everything done right on time, use every minute as uh, efficiently as possible, not waste any time, all of those things. But we have to be realistic and remind ourselves that we are human. We're going to slip. 
we all procrastinate at times. You know, I sometimes work with families and they come in and they say, oh, you know, our 15-year-old, our he's procrastinating. And I'm like, you know, we all, we all do it all the time. And I'm not saying we don't want to encourage him or support your, your kid with this, but to not judge him that, I, can you believe it, he procrastinates. Every human being on earth has and, and continues to procrastinate in some ways in their life. But like I said, rather than just looking at it as that, well, I procrastinate, that's it. We want to look a little deeper. What's the anxiety that might be contributing to this uh, procrastination? What am I avoiding? What am I afraid about doing this thing that's contributing to me procrastinating, to me avoiding it? Because procrastination is in essence an avoidance mechanism. I'm avoiding doing something. And of course, it uh, costs us because now we have less time to do that thing. It doesn't go away and we create stress and pressure. And then sometimes we just force ourselves to do it in a bad way. It could even be a type of self-sabotage uh, that we don't do our best work. And maybe even we use that as an excuse. Well, I, I procrastinated. So this was as good as it was rather than facing what can I do when I actually invest all my time and energy in the best way or in a good way and see what that result is. So just a reminder of when we're looking at our time management, rather than just thinking I either have it or I don't, we want to take first a look at what we're doing with our time and then try to understand the whys of why we do certain things, why we don't do certain things, and then try to make adjustments based on how we understand ourselves better. Let's go to another commercial break, 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session at Dr. Fire with Fire Talk. We will be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, Dr. Olakui. Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, I'd like to use your knowledge as much as I can. <laughs> okay. So I'm I'd like to use question. I'd like to use my knowledge as much as I can too. I think we all we all <laughs> we all hopefully well, could use our own knowledge too. But yes, go ahead. or one of the books you suggest, mm -hmm. if I do that by myself, it's way different from understanding the book point of view as opposed to just uh, having you to consult with. So I came mm -hmm. up with a suggestion. Um, please let me know if it's okay or not. Okay. Um, the suggestion is have a Zoom meeting on any other day except Monday and Wednesday that you already have a program. Mm -hmm. And we give our emails to your Facebook in the messages, and then you can send us the link to a Zoom meeting and the book you suggest, and we go chapter by chapter, and we talk mm -hmm. about it. With you, a person with a degree in psychology, present in this discussion, See, mm -hmm. I'm asking you something to use your knowledge yeah. as much as I can, <laughs> but I, and this is what I meant. Well, I appreciate do you that. Think I, this is doable yeah. for you. I mean, doable. Yes, I'd have to. I mean, I, I don't want to give an answer about doing it or not. Um, I've thought before about, of course, right now with coronavirus, this would not be possible. But having like seminars or types of mm -hmm. uh, uh, in-person 
meetings where it would be based on a book. So I would, let's say, plan it from a month or two months in advance and say this book and I'll talk about it and then have some opportunity for it also be discussion and people to share thoughts or break up into groups and talk about them as well. So it's something I've thought about before. Um, of course, the feasibility and have to think of the logistics of doing something like that. And I know you said share my knowledge or use my knowledge, but that what could be good about those types of meetings is you learn from each other. And of course, I would be learning exactly, as well from whoever's uh, in the group. Yeah. But we have somebody... Uh, more knowledgeable with a degree in psychology present in case we go to the... Oh, what happened? <laughs> I don't um, know. In case we go and discuss the things uh, in a wrong way. But the thing is, you know, I was thinking, okay, what is this in this form, Mr. Dr. Holakwi, yourself? And then I thought if you, after the meeting, the Zoom meeting, you would posted on YouTube and lots of people look at it, you can earn money out of uh, YouTube with a lot of uh, visitors the way others mm -hmm. are making money. Well, I, I appreciate Plus, you. Uh, <laughs> You're trying to make it a win-win situation. In a very busy schedule we have, we really can't do more than a chapter a week. So I, I'm, I'm already in another Zoom meeting with some Buddhists. We're, we're reading a book about Buddha, not Buddha, about and the psychology of Buddha, whatever you call it. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, but the books you're, you're telling us, I don't really read half of it because there's no time. And then when I read, I have questions, and I wish I could ask somebody. Mm -hmm. So Zoom, I mean, this corona did teach us a good thing, which is, which is Zoom meeting. Would you like to give it a try? And I suggest everybody else who's interested, just go to Dr. Mafarit Holokwi's site and in the messages send their private emails to you and then you collect them and and we share it with our friends and it becomes more and more people involved in those meetings well i appreciate it and as i said earlier i'm not going to make a commitment to do it i'm open to it and would want to think about how to make that happen i appreciate you sharing that uh, a few things came to mind though from what you said interesting about what I talked about today related to time. And I'm not saying everyone has enough time and people have different obligations and life things going on, but you said there's not enough time to read the books. And I'm not saying you personally necessarily do, but I would also let you know for myself, it's that I have to make it a priority. I read every day. Um, usually on the weekends, I have to read more and I'll devote hours of time. I, I don't speed read. Sometimes people will ask me about that. And I'm not just trying to make this about how I read the books. But just to emphasize this point that it's not about um, having the time or that I have this time so I can do this. It's a way that I'm choosing to use my time each week. I do get the benefit of the accountability I have to talk about the book on my show that pushes me and makes me have an extra um, responsibility to make sure I get the book done. While I'm reading the book, I also am thinking about how will I talk about this book. Even they've done some research that when people we know that teaching is the best way to learn something, but they've even found that when people study something as if they're going to teach it or they're being told they're going to teach it, even if they never do, they tend to learn it and comprehend the information better than if they weren't told they were going to teach it. So it shows that our mindset is different when we know 
we're going to have to explain this or discuss this with someone else. So I definitely get that benefit. But I make that point that when you say you don't have the time uh, to read more than a chapter a week, I'm assuming you likely do have that time. It's just how we decide okay. to use that time. I and I'm not saying you need to do that. Too. Sure. I, I said something else, too. I didn't just say having the time. I said yeah. understanding what I read. I can read sure. a book from my book club, mm -hmm. and we talk about it. But it's not as deep as when you read a book about psychology to me, you really have to concentrate. And if yeah. you have ADD like a lot of us do, or I do, okay, I do, <laughs> <laughs> then you really need somebody to, you need a teacher around you. You need a master of ceremony. I don't know how to somebody to guide you and say, hey, you didn't get that part properly. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's why I want to read a chapter every week or two chapters every two weeks because I have to concentrate on what I'm reading mm -hmm. and then bring up questions for you at the meeting and others' questions, listen to them and learn. That's what I really call reading mm -hmm. a book. It's, you know talking about it yeah anyway I th uh, well no, I th it's a good point no but and I, I also wanted to you know it's not that reading a book a week is the right thing to do anyway you know there's different ways that we learn and try to take in information if you want to get more in depth it might be different if you want to have discussions with people that's different if you highlight the book that's gonna you know there's so many different things so it's not that I'm suggesting one book a week is the right way because that's what I'm doing. That's just something that I started to do and it works for me. It makes sense. It kind of works for the show uh, to talk about it as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, I know but what I you're say saying about... You choose one of those books, your show is different. No, I, yeah, I got it. Yeah. You then right. you choose one of the books as you suggest and then we go on in the Zoom meetings and then our discussions mm -hmm. could go on YouTube or not, depending on sure. you. Sure. I'm that's, sure that's a true. lot of people will join. Gradually, it'll grow. Now, whether... I, I think it's an idea, like I said, I'll consider, and I've thought about doing things like this. And I know you mentioned having someone with a degree, and it can obviously can help. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I don't think it, it's necessary. And you mentioned having a book club, and what can be good about book clubs is you learn from each other, you share your perspectives, you have discussions, and you gain insights that you yourself might not have gotten. And I'm that way too. People will sometimes share with me about one of the books I've talked about, something they gained out of it, and I might not have seen that same uh, thing. Now, another thing I'll add is something I try to keep in mind when I'm reading the books. One is, um, again, I don't speed read, and I read at a fairly slow or just moderate rate. But also, I'm reminded of an Eric Fromm's book, To Have or uh, To Be. When you are being, uh, uh, even when you're reading a book, you're not just taking it in, you're having a conversation with the author, meaning that you're actively engaged in trying to understand, even challenging the ideas that are being presented, which is, first of all, going to help you understand it better, but also will let you gain more about what you think about the book. So you're not just taking it in. And so even when you say for me to be on there, I can understand having someone facilitate and add some of their knowledge can be helpful. So I'm not saying those aren't good things, obviously. That's a big part of how education system tends to work uh, in, uh, in the United States and around the world. But, um, you know, there isn't always this person that knows better or that's going to tell you the right way to understand this book. 
a lot of times we have to get that understanding. So when I talk about the books, I'm sharing some of my thoughts, but they're not the thoughts and the only way to understand these books. I might even see something in a way the author did not intend, which could be good or bad or different or whatever it might be. So uh, in the meantime, um, as I think about what to do and if I would do something like this, I hope you'll find ways to do this with friends or other people who might have a similar um, way of wanting to read the books or similar books they'd want to read, as it seems like you are doing, at least with some people. Okay. And we could all find ways to do that. Book clubs, I think, are a great way to both, it keeps us accountable and it also uh, allows us to have a discussion about the book where we can learn from one another and gain more out of the book. So I, I hope I'm, you know, I, I don't assume that people are going to read all the books with me as I'm reading them. I know for a lot of people, they'll say they hear my summary and uh, my thoughts on the book, and it might make them want to read the book, or at least they feel like they got something out of the book. So it's not necessarily I'm, I'm saying do it the way I'm doing it. But um, what you're suggesting, like I said, I'll think about it. I've thought about it before. And the age of Corona does create these challenges, but also new opportunities. Okay. So I'll keep that in mind. Great. So I will uh, send my email to you just in case, because maybe the day <laughs> okay. you decide I, I was not listening to the program or something, yeah. and in case you can collect emails from now uh, sure. for people who are interested in Zoom meeting with you. And, uh, Sounds good. Thank you very much for your time. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for calling and thanks for the suggestion. Um, yeah, so that's something I'll keep in mind, as I mentioned, I did before. I think it would be nice to have seminars uh, where different books would be discussed to get in depth about the, the different books. I, I think there's so many ways to learn, not just through books, but for me, this has been something really meaningful and important. And talking about time management, as I did in the first two segments, I always wanted to read more. As many people, I don't think there's people that uh, would not want to read more, just like we wouldn't mind exercising more, meditating more, lots of good things that we know. But going back to this theme of time management or how we use our time, very often we find that we don't do the things we know that are good or that we think would be good for us. So making this commitment to a book a week was a nice way for me uh, to put aside time. Now the books can be different lengths and might involve different involvement or I might read them slower or faster based on the material and the, the type of um, the length of the pages, all those types of things. But it's basically my way of for myself saying I'm going to set a time, maybe 10, 15 hours a week to read every week. And that's just going to be every week, no matter what. So it's a way of allocating my time by creating this measurable I don't really count the hours and the minutes, but by a book a week, and most books are in a certain range, and that's just kind of how it's worked for me. So that's been one form of, you can say time management, is that I've committed some hours of my week to reading, because I think that's important. And that's something important for us to keep in mind, that if you ask most people what do they think are important things to do with your time, you will always see that there's a mismatch between what they say are the good uses of time and what they do. Because first of all, what we say is good is kind of an idealized version of it. So we kind of will, it's easy to say, do this, do this, do that, as if you're a robot, but we're human beings and we don't always use our time efficiently and we have good days and bad days and lots of other factors. So we're never going to be this perfectly efficient or do exactly what we think is the best use of our time. But it's important to look at what do I prioritize as far as think it's important 
and what am I doing, as I was talking about before. Because a lot of people will say it's so important to spend time with family, that's the most important thing. And then they look at their week and they see that because of work and other things that they've um, you know, used their time doing, they don't spend a lot of time with their family. And so it could be puzzling, but it'll take some effort to rearrange and prioritize things in a different way to make sure the things that we are doing are the things that we think are worth doing. And, and I'm reminded by, of the book, um, How to Measure Your, or How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen, a really good book about this topic, about looking at how you're using your time. And when you look back at your life, what will you have wanted to do with your time? Um, he talked about how even though he was a busy professor and had a lot of work to do for a long period of his life, he would leave work at 5 p.m. no matter what because he wanted to make sure he was home with his family. And, and yes, we might say, well, if one day you leave at 5.30 or one time at 6, is it okay? Um, yes, but when we create patterns, once it becomes something we're doing or not doing, then that kind of becomes it. So once you say, oh, it's okay to leave at 6, you probably will start leaving at 6 every day or maybe even later. But we sometimes need these hard and fast rules with some flexibility, but overall be more firm about it because that helps us. So for example, my book a week, yeah, does it matter if I read a book every two weeks or if one of the times I did it in a week and a half or uh, you know, one in a month? Obviously not really, but it keeps me on top of it in a way that allows for me to to get more out of the reading or to get get it done in a way that feels good for me and then it keeps me uh, as, uh, keeping it as a priority. So thank you for the call and the suggestion, something I will think about. I know you said you'd send your email. More than likely, I don't think it's something I'll do in the immediate future, but it's possible I'll think about it and, and see what can be done with that. Uh, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. So the theme of time has come up a lot on today's show. And what I wanted to talk about in this segment is another one of these kind of perspective types of things. You know, in the first segment I talked about to-do lists, but also having a to-don't list or things we don't want to do at all or maybe want to do less of in our life. And so what I wanted to talk about in this segment was how we tend to have this fear of not dying in the sense of a self-preservation type of a thing. And of course, like a lot of natural tendencies that we have or characteristics we might have, we can also take that to overdrive. So people can have such a fear of dying that they become overly anxious in how they live their life and not taking certain chances, both in, let's say, maybe emotional ways, but even in physical ways and it can lead to lots of fears or uh, even phobias of what they do. So we have this fear of not dying, right? If something is happening, if you're drowning in the, in the water, you're going to fight for that. You're going to fight to not die. And it makes sense and that's good. So we fight to not die and make sure we're, we're alive. But there's a, another way of looking at that, which is something we don't really have so strongly. And this is a fear of not living our life or living a good life. Meaning that we have this fear to make sure we don't die, but then, okay, let's say you survived, which is good, but now what are we gonna do with that time? We tend to really not take that so seriously. There isn't this same kind of push or anxiety. Sometimes at a given time, you might recognize you have some regret based on things you have done or haven't done in your life. Oh, I wish I 
didn't do that or I did that. I wish I spent more time doing that. But sometimes we need to create that fear a little bit more and not fear in a bad way, but to, to make us recognize the urgency of living this life. We know the common example of either a thought experiment or of hearing real people's experience of looking back at their life on their deathbed and thinking about what they feel good about, but also regrets. And very often it's things like, I wish I spend more time with family or more time with relationships. And, and as the adage goes, or people sometimes will post things like this online, no one really says, I wish I spent more time at the office when they look back at their life. Usually it's, we wish we had spent more time with loved ones, done good things and, and done things in a way that we feel better about. So we sometimes have to imagine this or think about that. And there's lots of different, uh, whether you want to call them meditations or thought exercises or visualizations where people think about being uh, or being on their deathbed or looking back at their life. Um, I remember in the books, uh, the book Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman and talking about Abraham Maslow. And he had kind of his own, not necessarily totally near death, but his health uh, through, I think it was a heart attack, became under question. And he realized that created a shift in him and how he was living his life or approaching his life and trying to just do and give as much as he could with the time he had left. And so, and he talked about that in the book, this theme came up of sometimes we have to think about our own death. It could be actually a very liberating thing, not to be afraid of it, but in recognizing that because I will one day die, what am I going to do with the time I have while I'm here? And so we have to almost create this I know fear sounds like a bad word, but a fear of not living our life. We should be afraid of that. What if I went through my life without living it the way that would have been good? We keep trying to keep ourselves alive, but for what? What are we doing with the time we have? What are we doing while we are alive? And similar to what I talked about time management in the more uh, smaller sense, like the microcosm of like a day-to-day -day time management, this larger or bigger picture of time management of how we use our life or life management, it takes effort. If we don't think about it, we kind of just ca get caught up in routines. And so what I often tell people is that for most people, their life and their time, it's something that's happening to them more than something that they are intentionally doing with purpose and meaning that they have determined. You know, uh, we go through our week and it's kind of like, I do this, I do that, I do that, and then that week's over and it's time for the next week. But there isn't really this taking, uh, you know, into account, what am I doing? What am I not doing? Is this what I want to be doing? And here's another example of where the coronavirus has actually given us an opportunity because for many people it put a lot of aspects or even almost all of their aspects of life on hold. It's kind of this forced reset where work might have changed, different aspects, uh, social obligations, various obligations were taken away. And now you're given a chance to look at your time and your life and how you're spending your time. And so I, I was urging people and also were in a way urging society to not go back to what was quote unquote normal because we actually might realize that what we took for granted as normal was unhealthy and not what we wanted. We're seeing this in the larger society with things like the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and, and racism and looking at police brutality and different issues where we don't want to just go back to how things were because how things were, were not okay. 
lots of people were suffering unnecessarily with the quote-unquote normal that we had expected. So we're trying to create a new normal or a new more just normal in, uh, in our bigger society. And I think that's actually very good. So it's given us, I think, a chance to evaluate or look at things in a different way. As is always the case, it's a confluence of factors that leads to any type of move, movement or societal issue that's going on. But I think the coronavirus has contributed to how people are approaching things this time. And hopefully it will be different this time or lead to even more meaningful change. So that's in the bigger picture way, but also in our own lives, looking at what we are doing. Okay, I used to spend 50 hours at the office. I used to do this. I did that. Um, do I want to be doing those things or those things that kind of just happen through my life? So we have to take this very cold and hard look at what's happening. What am I doing with my time? And even if I had my ideal life, and by ideal, I don't mean something that's unrealistic, but of what I'd like to do with my time. And this is where it can be important to not just focus on things like uh, I want to have this goal. That can be very important. But we want to live a value-driven life. What are the things that are going to be important to me? Okay, spending time with family and creating relationships. Well, obviously that sounds good, but how do I make that a reality in my life? How am I going to make that a priority in my life? Um, how do I make sure there's meaning in my life? A lot of people, they're going through their day-to-day -day and there isn't a lot of purpose or meaning. It's just about surviving and not living. Living your life means that you're actually doing the things you want to do that make you feel alive. Surviving just means not dying. And again, I do want to add this point that not everyone has as much freedom or flexibility with their time because of financial and uh, personal obligations and their situation and circumstances. And that actually can limit how much freedom they have to just explore how they're using their time. So I know this can be a luxury. But uh, going back to the book just a few weeks ago, Economic Dignity by Gene Sperling, I think it's so important that we create a society where everyone has more flexibility to actually live a life that they want, live the good life that they want. And that's what the book focused on is how do we create that or make that the goal of our economic policies to make sure that everyone does get a chance to, as he put it, provide for their family so put food on the table, but also to sit at that table, to be with their family and spend time with them. So I, I do recognize that in the current society, not everyone has these luxuries of how to spend their time and make these big decisions. And in, in everyone's life, there are some obligations and necessities that we have to make sure we take care of. Uh, but there is a huge range in how much freedom we have there. But overall, trying to see in, with whatever flexibility we do currently have, how do I want to live the life that for me will be a meaningful one, a purposeful one? And if we just focus on how our time is going day to day, we might recognize that we're not actually doing that. So if you want to be closer with your children, how will you make that a priority? How are you going to make it that each week you do spend time with them? Uh, children can be a big reminder of the passage of time. You see them obviously grow and age in a different way than we do as adults and it can be a reminder of how fleeting time is how limited our time is and that's something that i've heard from a lot of people that being forced to work from home of course there's challenges and hardships that come with that but one of the beauties has been spending more time with their family 
And this realization that when things go back to quote unquote normal, whenever and however that might be, do I want to go back to being away from my family as much as I was? Do I want to not be around them so much? Is that necessary? Again, you might not have that flexibility, but maybe you do. Another thing we've become aware of is that, of course, lots of things have been put on hold. Production in different ways has changed and slowed down. But a lot of things we thought we had to do in person or we had to do in a certain way, we can do away from home or, by our, or at home. Um, or we don't have to do as much as we thought we did. This mindset of a 40, 50 hour work week that you have to be in an office for that long every week has kind of become some norm, some bare minimum. But do we need to do that? Is it necessary? I think it goes back to some of our notions of what it means to be quote unquote productive. That if I'm not sitting in an office 50 hours a week, I'm lazy or I'm not a hard worker. But that's not necessarily true. And some of these concepts and ideas have been created over time. And we just hold on to them without really evaluating, are they really good for us? Do we need this as people, as individuals, as families, and even as societies? Is this something helpful to us? Or maybe there is uh, some other way. And anyone who's heard me talk about different uh, things related to how we use our time, I'm all about working hard and working very hard. But hard work doesn't mean it necessarily has to take up all of our time. It means that we de dedicate and devote time uh, and focus on certain types of things. Even when you talk to most people who work, they know that if they're in the office for nine hours, they're not working for nine hours. And of course, we need breaks. We need to socialize at work. Those are things that are actually important and things that we miss the social part of being together at work, for example, for many people. But we know that we don't need all that time, but we feel good that if we spent nine hours at the office, that was a good day of being busy. But really, do we need to do that when maybe you could have had two more hours with your family? But anyway, coming back to this theme of we don't want to just be afraid of dying or protect ourselves from dying. We want to have a fear of not living our life. To think about that. How will I feel on my deathbed looking back at my life and feeling like I didn't live? I just survived and went forward, but I wasn't actually living my life. And it takes some effort to create that. The fear of dying... Uh, might be there sometimes, but of course, if you feel you're threatened, it becomes very strong. So it's much more automatic. But this fear of not living is not something that we naturally think of or comes to us until actually usually when our life might feel in danger and our life might flash before our eyes or we're older or on our deathbed and looking back on life. Then it's happening, but unfortunately, that's when it's too late. And so we shouldn't be forced to have a near-death experience at a younger age or get to that point where we no longer can do something about it to reflect on these things. And with some effort, we can try to create that mindset to make this more of a priority and a bigger way of how we approach our lives. So just something that came to mind when we're looking at how we spend our time and using our time wisely. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So the show has been focused on the theme of time and wanted to share a story that um, in a way relates to time and how we use our time and how time can have effects on us. So the story begins with a married couple. They've been married for 10 years. 
but their life has gotten pretty boring. As most people think, it does just become naturally. We get bored of each other, we get bored of life, but that's all we can hope. And to be in love for many years, many people think, is just a fairy tale, a, a fantasy that's not realistic. That's why it exists in the fairy tales and romance movies and novels, but it's not something we can actually have. So we have John and Sarah, and they've been married for 10 years, but their marriage has gone pretty dull. They sit at the dinner table together just because they feel like they're forced to, but there's not much of a connection, not much conversation, pretty boring. They barely ask about each other's days. They've kind of become like roommates or flatmates who just live together, but don't have much of a connection or spark. As people say, they've grown apart over the years. They've uh, the passage of time has unfortunately created more and more space between them. And so, uh, I don't even remember the names I said, but let's say it was John. So John is upset after another dinner where he, they barely talk, and he goes to his uh, the room where he likes to do his work, and he gets on his email, and he sees uh, an email for a dating website somehow got on his email. And so he doesn't think much of it, but he thinks it's kind of funny. So he clicks on it and he sees that it's an interesting um, dating website that's made for people who are bored with their marriage, just to have someone to talk to or chat with and connect with. So kind of out of curiosity and really without thinking much about it, because if he probably thinks more about it, he wouldn't do it. He goes ahead and just clicks on the link and he sees it and it looks pretty interesting. And he kind of tells himself it's like as a joke. But let me just make a profile just to see what's there, just to see what's happening. So he makes a profile, doesn't have to put up a picture and doesn't have to put up his name or he can make up a username. So he just goes on there and now he sees there's all these profiles of other bored married people who are uh, looking for people to just chat with or connect because, you know, they're so bored. Uh, and the name of the website is Unhappily Ever After. And so everyone's just unhappy out here you know kind of accepting this is life it's just you get married you think it's going to be good you think it's your soulmate but you get bored so he starts chatting with a few people based on profiles that he thinks are kind of funny or interesting but he doesn't think much of it so he sends a few messages gets a few back and that's about it then he you know and he thinks this is kind of nice i feel a little bit of an excitement i don't feel any excitement in my marriage that's dead and done and nothing can be rekindled there probably. This is the rest of my life, so let me at least maybe have a little fun. Not not really cheating, I'm just kind of sending some messages, not a big deal. And so the next day he wakes up and he realizes, hey, let me check out that, uh, that app and see what's going on. And he has gotten some responses. So he's like, okay, let me write back to them. And he finds one of them actually kind of funny and they have a connection and so they start messaging each other. He tries to be careful how much he talks about his life and getting too personal about his marriage and she agrees to do the same thing and so they start chatting him and this girl and they kind of find a connection with each other and so he tells her about, about how frustrated he is at work and she gives him this wonderful supportive responses that make him feel good, make him feel understood. She tells him about how great he is and how smart he is and that they don't treat him right and really makes him feel understood and seen in a way he hasn't felt in so long. 
and they start to flirt and the messages get a little bit more uh, even sexual and friendly and but still he thinks this is just playful fun it's not really anything happening and so day after day he starts messaging with this woman and they exchange pleasantries exchange some support she tells him a little bit more about things going on in her work and things that are happening he shares a little bit more about himself but he tries to conceal his identity he doesn't know who he's talking to he doesn't know um, how maybe they could be connected or even know one another if they do so he tries to be aware of what he shares with her and so they they chat but he realizes each day more and more he's feeling more of a connection and more attracted to this person he's never even seen and he's looking forward to messaging with her and so of course he's making sure his wife never sees this but he's always in his room having these messages or when he's at work he sends these messages to her back and forth and he realizes it's one of the things that he's most excited about each day and so even in his head he's complaining gosh why couldn't i have this kind of a relationship with my wife why couldn't i be with someone like this woman uh, i'm stuck here with my wife i wish i was this with this woman and so they continue the exchanges and he feels more and more uh, excited when they talk but also this bittersweet feeling of um, this is maybe not such a good thing but a reminder of how i don't have the marriage i want or why is life so unfair that I feel so connected and this person gets me and feel so excited talking to this person, um, but my wife that I live with, she's just so boring and dull, uninterested, and doesn't make me feel good at all. And they start to develop stronger and stronger feelings as they're talking and chatting every day. And after a few weeks, the girl asks, hey, what if we met up? What if we saw each other? And he's shocked surprised a little excited very anxious unsure if it's the right thing to do unsure if he should do it go ahead and see this person or not so after some contemplation and consideration he says you know what i deserve this i've been so unhappy my marriage is basically dead let me just see this person what's the worst that can happen so, of course, uh, this is pre-corona, so they can meet in a restaurant. And so they make plans to meet at a restaurant. She tells him what she'll be wearing, and he tells her what she, he'll be wearing, so they finally can see each other. And so he walks into the restaurant, and who does he see sitting there at the table but his wife? This whole time, both of them did not know that they were actually chatting with their own spouse. They thought it was someone else because they were concealing some parts of their identity, it actually turned out it was their own partner that was there. And so of course, they're both shocked, they're both surprised in multiple ways, they're both embarrassed, they're both in a way ashamed because now they both know that the other person knows that they were talking to someone else, but they also know that that other person was talking to someone else. So it's just a whole bunch of mixed feelings uh, that they have in this moment that they try to kind of process together and uncover. And so now the story can go wherever you want it to go, but wanted to share some thoughts on what this story could be telling us or some of the themes that might be important. Um, to begin with, there's this theme that relationships and love has to get boring, that we have to become disinterested in each other, that we have to no longer get excited about each other, that the spark has to completely die and go away. And now we're like roommates or flatmates and we don't really feel much 
for each other. That's just relationships. And I've even heard it myself, and I've seen it even this conversation having happening before, where you see someone who's been married for a while talking to a newlywed or someone who's not married yet, and kind of giving them this, uh, you know, sad talk about how, yeah, you know what, maybe it's fun now, but it gets boring after a while. Believe me, or have the fun you can, you fun you can have right now because once you get married it's it's going away you're not gonna have any more fun or excitement and this is a fallacy that we've all or many of us have believed because it seems to be so true and we see it so much that it has to be this way not realizing that what we're actually doing is with our partner because we'd rather feel safe and secure and thinking we know each other we'd prefer to make the relationship boring rather than keep the excitement alive, which means that I don't fully know you and I have to continue to fully get to know you in order to um, actually realistically see you for who you are, but also that would keep our love and the passion more alive than if we assume, I already know you, this is boring, let me just uh, at least feel safe, but I don't feel excited anymore. So that's something we've been told, but it does not have to be true. And even they have scanned the brains of people who are still in love or say to be in love many years or decades after meeting and they find that their brains look very similar to people who are newly in love with each other so that spark doesn't go away and whenever i talk about this research a very common reaction is like oh they're so lucky to still be in love after so many years but the truth of the matter is they're not lucky people work to keep that love alive your relationship and your love has to be like a living, breathing thing. Or as I like to say, it's like your first child. Even if you decide to have kids later on, your love and your relationship is a living and breathing thing, which means it needs love, time, and attention to keep it alive and to keep it growing. So people who are still in love many years later, they have the right mindset about how they look at their partner um, look at love and look at how they want to approach the relationship and they continue to work on the relationship. Don't think of it as luck, which actually points to what we usually think about love is that you find a soulmate and you find that Prince Charming or Princess Charming and once you do, it's happily ever after and it's easy or you got stuck with the frog and you're not going to be happy and that's it. But it's not about just you picked someone and either you're going to be happy the rest of your life or you won't. Yes, it's very important to pick a good partner who's a good match for you, but even when you pick the right partner, you have to work hard to keep the love alive and to keep the passion alive. It's not just about picking the right person. It's about picking the right person and then creating and continuing to create a good, loving relationship. And then I won't get into um, too much, but just it does happen a lot these days, people being bored and unhappy in their relationships and turning to an online affair. It's very, very common, sometimes with someone so far away that actually makes it safer, that they actually don't have to face what's going on. Even in this story, the character kind of went into it without thinking it was anything. It was kind of funny. That was his uh, cover, a defense to tell himself, I'm going into this. It's funny to observe what's going on. But really, he was likely being pushed by this desire to be close or be connected to someone. And so you hear a lot of stories about people turning online. It's a secret way it's an easy way people have this exposure to find a connection and in, like our uh, character in our story very often we think well it's not cheating because we're just talking which absolutely to me is not true 
what is considered cheating or being unfaithful is anything that breaks the agreement or not really contract in a legal sense, but the agreement you and someone else have made. Anything that you think is unacceptable because of what you guys have said and your commitment to each other, that is an affair. So it's not just about if you have a sexual relationship with someone, as some people will say, um, but anything that breaks that. And one way to test that is would you tell your partner about what you're doing? If your messages to this person are harmless and not cheating at all, would you show them and share them with your partner? If their answer is no, then you really should think about how much this is not cheating and probably that it is. Why would you have to hide something from your partner if it's okay? Just like people who will say, oh, I met a colleague for lunch, but I didn't tell my partner. Now, obviously, in the course of our lives, we can't describe every minute that happens in our lives. But if you know that there's a reason why you don't want to tell your partner about what's happened, you should think about saying this is just lunch. Sometimes maybe we know our partner is jealous of that coworker, or we uh, have expressed some way some interest in that coworker, or whatever it might be, and that's why we're pursuing it. But to just lie to ourselves and say it's just lunch, okay, if it's just lunch, then you should be able to just tell your partner about it. But if you find that you don't want to, or you're afraid to, or you uh, think it's better, eh, they don't need to know about that, then that's telling us you are doing something that's being unfaithful. You are cheating on them. So um, uh, online affairs, and then related to that, usually it's an emotional affair. Uh, these definitely are forms of infidelity and cheating. And so to me, this concept of cheating means sex or even physical kissing or something has to cross that barrier. Of course, those things are infidelity, but so many things before that are being unfaithful. If you know it breaks that type of agreement and contract you have with your partner, and it's something that you would hide from them if uh, you could to make sure they don't find out about it. So there's all these concepts in play about the online affair. And we're at a commercial break, but after the break, what I'll talk about is this realization that they had. So when they see each other, how much um, there is there to process about what does this mean about us, about where we were, and maybe what they could have in the future. They were so bored of each other, they were so sick of each other and thought the other person doesn't get each other, but then somehow in this discreet and coincidental way, connected in a way with each other that actually was quite meaningful. So the thought that I need someone out there to make me feel good was something that they realized was actually not the case. Maybe the person living in their home was the person that they could actually love, but they just were not aware of it. So after the break, I'll share some more thoughts on that story. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I shared a story with, I believe it was John and Sarah. I could work on the names a little bit. Um, and their unfortunate 10-year marriage that has now led to them both being very bored. And John goes online kind of in this uh, unintended way, but finds himself connecting with this woman online, has these very strong feelings for her. They finally decide to meet one another. And then he sees who's sitting there at the table, but his own wife, Sarah. And so I shared some thoughts in the previous segment about different aspects of what was going on in that story. But what I wanted to talk about in the last segment of the show today is this realization that they hopefully both had, and I'm hoping to share with everyone listening, that 
the person that they actually could love and have a good relationship with was not some other person, but was to recreate or to rekindle that love and relationship that they had together and they had for each other. They didn't have to actually look outside to make things better. They had to look first within themselves and then within their relationships and each other to make things get to a better place. And so you see this play out in many people's lives as their marriage has challenges, hardships, uh, feelings build up, they feel more distant from one another. People start to think of other people to different levels and degrees of getting involved with them. And I mentioned things about coworkers. Uh, that could be a common theme because as people were around. And so someone might find themselves attracted to a coworker. And of course, attraction to begin with is a natural human tendency. So just because if you have a feeling of attraction doesn't mean necessarily much. Uh, but sometimes we can give that more weight to be like, oh, I'm feeling something so strong for this person. And they start to connect more with them. They might make some jokes and uh, laugh. And now they find themselves thinking about this person more. And very often what people experience is like, see, see how fun and nice it is with this person. But then with my husband or wife, it's so boring and negative. And, you know, this person gives me compliments and my partner doesn't. And this person makes me laugh and me and my partner ever laugh together. And we start to think it's something good about this person and bad about our partner that's leading to these feelings that makes it feel so good with this new person and so bad with our partner. But it's much more complicated than that. Because, of course, when you're just flirting with someone at work and having these short communications, you're not going to have problems and issues that come up with actually living life together, actually having emotional intimacy and closeness that brings up feelings and bring up, brings up discomforts and brings up everything else that comes with getting close to someone. So, of course, it feels light and easy with this person because you're not close to them. But we fool ourselves and convince ourselves that what we're feeling is this very strong connection to this person that's making us feel good because we only get that good stuff. Yeah, if you say hello to someone for one minute and you smile at each other and make a joke, you only get something pleasant and nothing bad. But that doesn't mean that person is good. That's telling you that your relationship is at a very surface level. And so you see this happen a lot where people are with someone and they have an affair or they leave that person for someone else because now this person is my soulmate. And at the beginning, it's fun and exciting, but then they find themselves in that same place again, because as they get closer and as that fantasy wears off and that idealization wears off, they start to actually have those same discomforts and issues come up. And usually what they think is, oh, see, this person wasn't the right one. I was wrong. And then they find someone else and now that person is the fantasy person until soon enough they realize oh no it's not them I was mistaken and they might continue that cycle or people just realize uh, what I thought was so good isn't this is it and I'm just stuck with it for the rest of my life kind of like uh, John and Sarah in our story where they kind of just accepted this is it and just wished for something better but really, it's just that when we have someone on the outside that we don't have to be very close with, we don't have to deal with the challenges of being in a relationship. So being in a relationship is difficult. And one of the things that leads to the distance, I was talking about how to stay in love, it's not about luck. It's not just two lucky people. They have to work on the relationship. But one of the things that makes our feelings change for our partner or someone 
is the emotional buildup over time. When you don't resolve issues, when you don't bring up pains and hear the pains of your partner, you start to have this emotional buildup. It's kind of like you have a wire that's connecting you, you with each other. You're connected in some way. And that connection, that wire is like your love. And of course, uh, you want it to be strong. But the more debris and buildup you have on this wire, the weaker that connection becomes. And so if you have a lot of anger and resentment towards someone, you have less good feelings of love and connection with them. That emotional debris and buildup starts to weaken that connection. So when people talk about growing apart, sometimes there is a growing apart, like they've become different. But a lot of times what they're really talking about is that their connection and love has grown weaker or because of not talking about things there's more space between us so another way of looking at this debris is that if you're emotionally connected we can imagine uh, two hands touching each other the palms of your hands touching each other and you feel that warmth and that connection but when you have emotional debris building up it starts to get in between those two bodies that are touching those two hands that are touching each other and now there's less heat and connection so the passion is dying down they don't feel that anymore so the growing apart isn't just because you're on these two paths that are going in different directions but it's because you haven't worked towards getting rid of this debris and build up to maintain that connection to stay close and now you're very apart because there's so much in between you so it's not always the growing away, it's the uh, not tending to the love. So sometimes I say when people talk about the flame going out, when we talk about passion, but how can you complain about the flame going out if you're not tending to the fire? If you're not paying attention to the fire, you can't just assume it's going to keep burning brightly and you know in a healthy way. It's eventually going to die out if you don't give it that attention. Same kind of thing. It's like things are building up on that fire, suffocating it, and it's going to die. So we have to put time and attention into our love to keep that flame alive. That growing apart is something that happens when we don't deal with that emotional debris and don't put time into maintaining the strength and the health of that connection. So here we see with John and Sarah, they start to connect with a quote unquote someone else, but actually it's the same person, it's their partner. But because they think it's someone else, they kind of have a fresh slate, right? There is no negative feelings there because they think they don't know this person. And so now when they connect, they can actually have this beautiful and nice connection as they probably had when they first met because there isn't that debris between them anymore that is taking away the connection that they had or getting in the way of the connection they can have. And so now it's this beautiful feeling of someone who gets me and supports me and all those really nice feelings because it doesn't have those negative things that they have built up. So the sense that John had of why can't my wife get me like this person? Well, of course she could because that is your wife, but it's your wife without that emotional debris that you've allowed along with her to build up in your relationship so that you no longer have those positive feelings or there's so much negative feelings that everything she says or does is colored by those negative feelings that you have. You can't feel good about what she's saying even if she says something nice because there's so much negativity there between you and her. So now when they see each other there, as I mentioned, you can imagine there's this whole host of feelings they have of shock, 
um, disbelief, some shame and embarrassment that they've been talking to someone else, the realization, well, my partner has been doing that, so maybe I don't feel as bad, but then maybe even anger at them, even though I've done it too. So there's probably a lot for them to process, and that can take some time. But hopefully, in, in the midst or while processing all those feelings, what also comes to their mind is this possibility that I thought me and my partner, me and my husband, or me and my wife, our relationship was dead, that there really wasn't a possibility to have a good relationship together. But clearly, if we've been talking and connecting and it felt good, it shows me that there maybe is this possibility that maybe we had given up on each other. Then maybe rather than this relationship being dead, the connection between us has been dead and we can revive that connection. Clearly, we're showing that we can have positive feelings with each other for each other as we did before. You know, often when you start couples therapy, you'll tell a couple or ask the couple to tell you about how they met, the story of how they met. And of course, this gives you lots of information about them, about how they met. You see the dynamics of how they're sharing the story, all of that. But there can also be this uh, moment or experience of sharing with them or having them share what made them fall in love and remembering those moments and remembering why they wanted to be with each other and what was so beautiful about the other person that drew them to one another and in that way at least at some level rekindle some of that passion and fire and desire that they can have for each other so maybe for john and sarah in this story this uh, online kind of flirting and connecting and supporting that they did might remind them of how things were and that they can go back to how things were. They have this connection now that they've created with these uh, pseudonyms and without really knowing who it was, but it reminds them that possibility is there. But what they're gonna have to do is go back and work on what got in between them and make things better and hopefully make even a deeper relationship than they ever had. Sometimes when we think about the passion going out, at some level, some of the passion changes because Yes, we can always see our partner as unpredictable or unknown because people are so complicated, but we do get to know the person more. So they're not going to be as unknown as day one. I do think you should always see them as unknown at some level. You always should be dating, but that does change to some degree. Some of actually what feels good after a while is that you feel like you know each other and you feel like your partner knows you and gets you. So that can change as far as how the passion is. But I do believe there is space to create a much deeper relationship, a depth to the relationship that can't exist at the beginning that actually can make it even stronger. So when we look at John and Sarah, my hope for this hypothetical couple would be that they actually now recognize they can connect to the possibilities there. And if they work on it, they can create a depth of a relationship that they didn't have before. And so for anyone listening, of course, if you're in a relationship or not, but especially if you are married and you think and you look at your partner and you think things have gotten boring, the passion has died and you've both accepted that just this is just the way it is or if you have gotten to that point where you think oh maybe i should be with someone else that's the problem and of course sometimes we are with the wrong people also sometimes we can have too much pain and damage in the relationship where it does make sense to leave so of course i'm not suggesting you should always stay with the person you're already with but i think it's so important to take a look at 
what you already do have with the person you're already with and the possibilities of having a different relationship with this same person. A relationship isn't just a thing that happens between two people like a chemical reaction, no matter what, it's just going to happen. A relationship is something that happens between two people that they create and co-create together and continue to build and create throughout their lives. So you can ask yourself and have this conversation with your partner, can we create a different type of relationship together? Can we recognize that many of the things we've assumed about us, that this is just it, or we've assumed about love and marriage, might not be truths that can't be changed, but just easy ways out that we've just accepted and now made part of our lives. And so I hope people will see this story as an illustration and example that we can have something different, but not necessarily with a different person, but the same person, but seeing them differently and seeing our love differently and also working on the relationship we have. Let's at least give an effort for what we have with between us and that we've built together rather than just giving up and moving forward, thinking that a new person is the solution. Maybe we need to create a new love and a new relationship together. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. As always, for the Wednesday's shows, thank you to Azale who is in the studio, making sure I can do the show from a distance. Uh, thank you to the callers and the listeners. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolokwi. Have a wonderful day.